Everybody's going for those kinky boots, kinky boots. Kinky boots, it's a manly kind of fashion that you borrowed from the brutes. Borrowed from the brutes. Kinky boots. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of Kinky Boots. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today we're going to be looking at the Avengers Series 1, Episode 8, The Radioactive Man. This was one of the batch of live episodes. It was recorded and transmitted on the 25th of February 1961 and broadcast in the ABC Northern Midlands and Anglia regions. The episode's lost, there are no telesnaps, uh, there's no reconstruction, and there's only one publicity still for this, although it's quite grainy, it's taken from the TV Times, and there's some doubt as to whether it's actually from this episode. There's a full clean copy of the camera script in existence, that's in a private collection, and this was used to make the big finished recon, which was written by Fred Edge and adapted by John Dorney, and that's on volume two of their Lost Episodes collection. This is a keel forward episode, and uh, Steed doesn't appear in Act 2 or most of Act 3. This episode was originally a teleplay written by Fred Edge for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation series General Motors Theatre. Now, this was later renamed Encounter. In fact, it had quite a few different names to the series. But it was a Canadian anthology drama series which ran on CBC television from the 18th of September 1952 until the 1st of January 1961. And it consisted of one-hour programmes of uh, romance, adventure and mystery stories. And it was produced by Sidney Newman. Several big-name stars appeared in this over the years, including Barry Morse, Patrick McNee, William Shatner, and James Doohan. Now, the episode in question was originally broadcast on the 14th of January 1958 in Canada and sold to the BBC for broadcast on the 28th of January 1959. It was adapted for The Avengers by the script editor Patrick Braun, and the adaptation took so long that the episode slipped down the running order. Originally, it was going to be fifth in the run. It slipped back to eighth place. Uh, George Pravda appears in this one as Marco Ogrin in the original version, and it's notable that Gerald Sim was originally cast as Dr. Graham, but he was replaced by Arthur Lawrence, possibly as a result of the episodes slipping around in the running order, but that meant that the original casting choice presumably wasn't still available. Actually, interestingly, in Dave Rogers' The Ultimate Avengers, it does list Gerald Sim as Dr. Graham. Really? Oh, well, that is interesting. Right. I really must consult, because you've given me an earlier copy of that book, and I really must have a closer look at it. Just with regards to the the original General Motors Theatre episode, I have looked all over the internet, and I can't find any trace as to whether it actually exists or not, unfortunately. So I can't even compare and contrast on that one. Dr. Exton, this is where you give us a precy of the episode itself. Yes, and again from The Ultimate Avengers by Dave Rogers. The precy is that Marco, an illegal immigrant, believes that if the police find him, they will deport him. In reality, the police are searching for him urgently because he's carrying a radioactive isotope capable of killing anyone in close proximity. With help from Marco's girlfriend, Mary... Keel, using a Geiger counter, traces Marco and discovers the crook who smuggles immigrants out of the country for money. With the arrival of Keel, Mary and Dr. Graham, Marco hands over the deadly isotope. 
Relieved, he is then taken to hospital for treatment, after which Marco and his cohorts are arrested and charged by the police. If Marco is carrying the capsule with him, he's got about ten hours to live, and the terrifying thing is it will contaminate anyone who comes into contact with it. I must have been out of my mind letting him in, but I was still worried about my wife. All right, sir. Now, while we're waiting... What's this thing look like? Just a small weight on the end of a piece of nylon line, rather like a piece of fishing tackle. Where the devil's Campbell? He'll be here the minute he finds the address. Now, supposing Marco is not at home, how long have we got? It's now past eight. You say he's got ten hours from the time he took the thing. That gives us till five o'clock in the morning. I'm saying he's likely to be dead by five o'clock in the morning. Is that an outside limit? Of course, I'm speaking in probabilities. You see, radium doesn't kill quickly, but if the capsule's been in his pocket ever since he took it, he's dying now. His blood cells are already beginning to break down. After about four hours, he'll have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. In other words, we haven't got till five to get him. How long do we have? If we're to save him, we'd better find him by one o'clock. I've got to say, I really enjoyed this one. Um, it was okay. I thought it was a very contrived plot. The whole bomb plot at the beginning added absolutely nothing apart from making some of Marco's countrymen really quite unlikable. And there didn't need to be a, a bomb plot. It was out of the way in basically one scene. The guy who's in charge of the expats could just have threatened to give up Marco for having a forged passport because he didn't want to support the community rather than building a bomb and not wanting to build a bomb. And yeah, that that bit didn't particularly work for me. You mean Kinvig, the one that uh, sounded like Walter Koenig out of Star Trek? I can't remember his damn name in the episode, the character's name, but he was the one that ran the radio rental shop. Milan. That was the one, yes. Where did but, Kinvig come in? The radio repair shop. Oh, right. Oh, I see what you mean. I do get what you mean about the not making it look particularly well on the uh, sort of... I'm going to say Russian, but uh, was that ever mentioned? The accent was no. certainly shop demonstration no. East European. Yeah, I, I was assuming, because of the time it was transmitted, maybe Hungary. It was only four years after the Hungarian uprising. Mm, could be. Either way, the, uh, the accent does a tour of the regions. <laughs> Yeah, um, so Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Romania, Bulgaria, somewhere Eastern European. Yes, one of those foreign blocks. Well, we've got Colin Baker and uh, Richard Franklin in the Big Finish version of this. Oh, right. Um, Go going on. back to the proper one for a second. We oh, yeah. have a, co- a couple of who <laughs> alumni. Bust. Uh, after Girl on Trapeze, I can't think of it any other way. You're very harsh at times, Dr. Exton. No, as we have said before, <laughs> I am, I a, am consumer. a consumer. Yeah, and Big Finish charge a professional fee for what they do. I expect a professional product. And I think The Avengers is done brilliantly. I think they, they really shot themselves in the foot by adapting the existing episodes. And I appreciate that that's not something that they could have done with Tunnel of Fear, but I really think it was a massive own goal with uh, Girl on Trapeze and when we come on to the Frighteners as well. But we're not talking about either of those in the, would you prefer me to say in the original? If if you wouldn't be. <laughs> in the television original, yes. Yeah. Okay. In the proper version, um, George Crafter <laughs> went on to play Jager in The Mutants, Spandrel in The Deadly Assassin and Denesh in Enemy of the World. 
Paul Grist, who played the second police constable, went on to play Bill Filer in The Claws of Axos and was also in episodes of Blake Seven, uh, Survivors and The Champions. George Pravda has a massive telefantasy CV. He was in The Monsters. He was in Moonbase 3, Callan, Doomwatch, Department S, The Prisoner, The Offshore Island. Christine Pollan, who played Mary, was the voice of the Oracle in Underworld and also appeared in an episode of Late Night Horror. There aren't any other Who alumni that I can see, but Barry Shawzin, who played Milan, was in Doomsday for Dyson in the 1950s version of The Invisible Man. Arthur Lawrence was in the 1962 adaptation of The Ghost Sonata. John Kelland cropped up in Doomwatch and Department S. Dane Howell, who was the um, the wee lad, wasn't he? Peter Summers turned up in The Strange World of Gurney Slade. And Basil Beale, marvellous name, um, <laughs> and he was the police inspector, was in The Escape of RD7 and played a policeman for two episodes in The Quatermass and the Pit. So quite a cast list there. Getting back to the story itself, I think the inclusion of radioactivity sort of pricked my ears up. I've got a morbid fascination with radioactivity and radiation-themed stories, so as soon as that sort of crept into it and it became basically a manhunt for this guy running around with a, a lump of radium, I was expecting it to be a thwarter bomb plot episode. It wasn't. The bomb plot, as you say, was swept aside fairly quickly and it became a manhunt for somebody who was basically dying. I did like that aspect of it. And with these season one scripts that we're seeing, and we particularly saw this in Girl on the Trapeze, I like the fact that they're doing the less obvious plot twists. I like the fact that their spies aren't seen as infallible. I like the fact that Dr. Keel is seen as it is a trainee. And that, that's basically what he was in this. It's here is a problem that uh, I, John Steed, could easily fix because I'm an experienced agent. But I want to see how you do it. I want to see how how you sort this problem out, it was him acting as a mentor. Yes, it was, yeah. To, to somebody who's who has potential and has interest, but is actually brand new to the espionage and crime-fighting game. And again, I would have thought, based purely on his portrayal in Girl on the Trapeze, that Ian Hendry's Dr. Keel was less confident and immediately capable than the the Big Finish one. The Big, fi Big Finish, they've obviously gone with the, this is the Avengers, these are two crime fighters, they know what they're doing. Girl on the Trapeze showed that Ian Hendry played it as somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing. They're making it up as they go along, and he's not doing a brilliant job of it all the time. And that's a much more interesting way of portraying the character. Agreed, yes. Now, again, I'm basing that on the one episode that we've seen, and it's such a shame that some of these don't exist. But bear in mind, a lot of the Big Finish, they are... I think we've only had three so far that are original Big Finish scripts, and one of those, Nightmare, has been as far as I'm concerned, as good as, if not better, than the original scripts. But as with any script... Yes, I have to agree. Mm, as, as with any script, you can read exactly the same words. The intonation and the way it's acted can put a completely different spin on it. This episode was taken from, or lifted almost verbatim, from the television script. So I can only put down that characterization to the way it's being portrayed. Yeah, and the girl on trapeze... 
the characterization was exactly based on what we saw on the telly because the episode exists and the episode exists at the time the big finish did it but i, I don't want to keep harking back to, to girl on trapeze because we we are talking about the radioactive man I've got to say, I did enjoy this. I I did. I really, it had me right from the off. I mean, the the scientist, um, Dr. Graham, again, this flawed character is working late at night. He wanders into his lab. He says to some random assistant, I could do with a bit of company. Do you fancy coming in for a brew? And it's all tied in with the fact that his wife is going into labor. He's worried about that. So he's got a personal issue playing on his mind. And it's just this more human character that, when you think about it, you don't often see in in programmes of this nature. Yeah, and what I liked about this was that, despite the Dave Rogers review, there wasn't actually any bad guy. I think that would have been brought more into focus if there hadn't been the bomb plot, and it would have just been a group of expatriates who are trying to support themselves and trying to set up their own little community to support themselves. And Marco wants to leave that because he wants to be, to be with Mary and Peter, and they're doing their best to to keep him within their number. Yeah, I think without the bomb plot, that would have been much more sympathetic. But then they all, when he it's realised that he, he is in trouble. And they don't know why he's being chased, but they know he's being chased. They all rally round. And I, I thought it was very telling that the, the safest route out of London was to fly to Belfast with a gun in his pocket. It because didn't go unnoticed. <laughs> that, that was very, very much of its time. Because at that point, the IRA was stuff that had happened in the, in the 30s and was... A bunch of old men that were a bit of a joke in Northern Ireland. And I know we haven't done Undermined on the uh, Extermos experiment yet, but there's, there's an episode that focuses on this. And it's very, very, very different to the post-1969 horrors and troubles that we saw and that you and I grew up with. Mm. At this point, Belfast would just have been another British city that you could uh, jump on a plane to and then get on the train down to Dublin. When I was living in Belfast pre-ceasefires, and I didn't get the train, I used to get the bus because I was a poor student. But very often the bus would be stopped and you had to get out for the army patrol. Yeah, I did think it was quite of its time, the yeah. uh, the whole Belfast thing. So I and thought it was really a nice touch that's been kept in for, for the big finish one. It does date it. But that's a good thing because mm. they're not doing what they did with Adam Adam and Lives in that they're, oh, this is those those innocent times of the 60s and we know so much better now and we'll rip the piss out of it. No, it's this is what telly was like in the 60s. This is what stories were like in the 60s. This is what we're going to show you and we're going to be as true to it as, as we can. And with this, I think they've done a pretty good job. Well, as ever, the sound quality is fantastic. Uh, I like the fact that they're sticking with the original scripts. And to be quite honest, this is, with the exception of Doctor Who, which is always going to be my favourite, this is probably the best thing that Big Finish have done. Uh, consistently, I think this is better than their Doctor Who range. Agreed, yes. Because of the consistency. What else have they done? Star Cops is pretty bloody good. Star Cops is excellent. Callan is really, really good. Ah, I've not got around to that yet, but I do have the discs. Well, when we finish The Avengers, we we can do an episode by episode of Callan. You do realise that's in another three years' time. <laughs> well, I'm not planning on going anywhere. Neither am I. 
And you uh, could just be less lazy and re- release two episodes a week. You don't yeah, need to do that. Lazy week, edit monkey. Can you imagine? Yes. Lazy, lazy edit monkey. <laughs> the amount of editing you do, I'm amazed that you do find any time to sleep or, or that work thing. Yes, it's a good job that I enjoy it. Getting back to the episode, the only criticism I've got, and this is not a big finish thing, at the end of the episode, Steen and Keel, they're off to round up all the others that Ogryn's been in contact with. How? They couldn't even find Ogryn. But once they know where he was, then they'd be able to to retrace his steps. In London, um, where on earth? They, he could have been in contact with any number of people at that time of night. But it, it's not like a virus. It's radiation. If you've only got a few minutes exposure, it's not going to kill you. It's people who would be in contact with him for a significant mm. amount of time. True. Uh, it was just the way that it was just tossed off. I do like these Avengers episode endings. They're all very sort of, uh, as you would put it, right, you've had your 50 minutes, we're off. Oh, wait till you get to, to <laughs> at least one of the the season two episodes. The, there's one called The Grandeur That Was Rome that is a wonderful episode until it just stops. <laughs> but we're not there yet. So shall we rate this in Masterminds? I'll let you go first. What do you think? I'm a bit conflicted. There were some really good things about this episode. There's no particularly bad things about this episode, but it just didn't massively grip me. I was I was a little bit bored by it in places. It's three out of five for me. I'm trying to look at this with a broader eye because each series is going to be a very different feel to it. So comparing something that would be a three out of five in this series to a three out of five in series four or five, it's going to be very different. This is a standout for me so far because I I did enjoy it. It did keep me hooked. In difference to how I usually listen to these, which is sat down in a big comfy chair with my amplifier on. I listened to this in the kitchen while I was working, and I ended up stopping working in the kitchen to sit down with a brew and listen to the rest of it. So for that reason alone, I'm going to give it a four out of five. I, I enjoyed this one. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing in it I didn't enjoy. If I, if I, if I hadn't enjoyed it, it would have been a one or a two. Mm. I just wasn't massively gripped by it in the way that I was with Nightmare, for Nightmare. example. Nightmare. Is that our standout so far from the series, Nightmare? No. The visual version of Golem and Trapeze is the standout. Mm, yes, fair enough. Yes, that's that's reasonable. But with that, we shall sign off. We shall be back next week with Ashes of Roses, the ninth episode in the series. Hope we've entertained you, informed you, and educated you. Until next week, bye everyone. Bye now. They'll be back. You can depend on it. Kinky Boots featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, with thanks to Studio Canal, Big Finish Productions, and Alan Hayes. Title music was performed by Honor Blackman and Patrick McNee, and the program was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit MaverickProductionsUK.blogspot.com or find us on social media.